0: Welcome to In-Depth Studies Weekend. In-Depth Studies is the teaching ministry of Jeff Volker, which seeks to equip the believer with a theological foundation. All teaching is from the point of view of the doctrines of grace and New Covenant theology.
1: Welcome again to another edition of In-Depth Studies Weekend. I'm your host, Paul Honeycutt, Elder at New Covenant Bible Fellowship, Tempe, Arizona. Joined, as always, with Jeff Volker, Director of in of in-depth studies, and also an elder at New Covenant Bible Fellowship. And Jeff, the last week we were exploring 2 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the glory of the New Covenant. And 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 I brought up, after we uh, recorded the show last week, that in this passage from verses 7 through about, uh, what is it, 18, Paul repeatedly uses the term glory, glorious, etc., Help me out with that. Explain that a little more. What 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 is the significance of that term, and where is he going with that?
0: Yeah, we're talking about uh, the Lord's historical plan of salvation, and that every part of it glorified him. And particularly here in Second Corinthians 3, we're comparing, contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, which is picture versus fulfillment. And in the Old Covenant, he's going to illustrate through a physical people in a physical land, Israel and Palestine, what Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross, which is the new covenant, a real people who actually have their sins forgiven and have transformed lives, and and they're going to be taken into a land that doesn't end, new heavens and new earth. Okay, so that's the picture fulfillment thing. But every aspect of it glorifies him. And so Israel, that 1,500-year historical illustration, was absolutely essential in God's plan for, you know, per, the preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so even though it wasn't his plan to save many Israelites, only a remnant during that period of time, yet that what happened was absolutely essential to happen in his plan of salvation. So both aspects glorified him. It's just when we read the old covenant history of Israel, it just doesn't look very positive. We just see unbelief after unbelief, rebellion after rebellion. But that is what he wanted to illustrate that, that if you try to seek acceptance from him on the basis of what you do, it is absolutely
1: hopeless. Right. Um Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, I, I remember as a young believer, as I read Exodus for the first time, really studied it, I was struck by how could these Israelites be so blind, so stupid, so stiff-necked? How could they not uh, want to obey and serve this God who had brought them out and and was before them with a pillar of light and all that? And yet, I look at my own life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I see what a crummy job I do most of the time trying to trying to keep it on the straight and narrow. It's only because of Christ's forgiveness oh, yeah. and work on the cross that that we can stand before this holy God. And that's that's the side of it that I think we that even here in the New Covenant era that we're constantly being reminded of. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's why. But it does. You know, I have to. You know, as a human being, I have to say, fifteen hundred years. <laughs> Right. It's like a long time. Oh. What why, why, why took you so long? You oh,
0: you're not the first one. The question is, <laughs> I'm thinking, I get this question constantly yeah. in, when I go teach and conferences, et cetera, as to why did he do it this way? Right. And my stock answer is, because I understand the question. It's my question, too. You know, you almost, it sounds kind of brazen to mm. say, well, if I was in God, I would have done yeah, it a different yeah. way. Well, that's, that's I sort of, then I cringe my shoulders about that one. Don't want to get struck down, but the idea is, no, the, however he did it—of course, the way it's described in Scripture is how he did it—since he is an all-wise, sovereign God, that the way he did it, by necessity, is the way it had to be in order to accomplish his plan. There is no other way it could have been done, otherwise he would have done it, mm-hmm. because he's all-wise. Right. So it's not as though— You know, this is simply, from our point of view, one way of many. No, he's all wise, so this is the way. And that really is our fallback position. Uh, You know, I I can sympathize with fellow believers who say, man, you know, Israel is the bulk of our Bible, a lot of pages, Old Covenant stuff. But it's mostly just unbelievers after unbelievers Mm. after unbelievers in sin, rebellion, you know, and after why you say enough is enough. Mm. But it was this is the plan of a perfectly wise sovereign lord in giving it to us this way and therefore it is crucial that we understand its purpose and which is why we're spending this time in the opening weeks of our program to simply carefully lay the foundation for how the, how does the old relate to the new particularly we're always going to be talking in relation to the old covenant the new covenant. And remember we had in the opening couple weeks we dealt with this sort of uh, folksy analogy of a football game mm-hmm. that the football game has two halves that's that is God's plan of salvation and the first half you know equates with the old covenant the second half with the new covenant and that is picture fulfillment. Most of the time in the teaching passages you know in the New Testament they are they are assuming you're having this these two periods of time before your eyes, old covenant, new covenant, and then what they are really is picture fulfillment, and we will constantly be referring to that because we think scripture assumes you understand that model.
1: Okay, back to Second uh, Corinthians three. Where do we leave off?
0: Well, we we went through we were up through verse eight. Where we left off, where there was this comparison of the old and new covenants uh, with a description that the old covenant is a ministry that brought death. Okay. And then, okay, and then uh, let's pick it up with verse nine. It once again continues this comparison. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Once again, the Old Covenant is a ministry that condemns because it demands perfect obedience. And, of course, just to re, a quick review. Go to Deuteronomy 28. Just read a, a verse or two. Deuteronomy 28 that we uh, addressed last week. It, it is over two weeks ago, actually. It is that... Uh, the Lord's command to Israel through Moses that when they cross the Jordan, of course, now they'll be under Joshua's leadership, there's going to be there's two mountains, Mount Ebo Mount Gerizim. They are to divide up like an antiphonal choir and recite back and forth the blessings and curses of the covenant. And of course, just to give you an example, uh, in verse 15, it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Then it gives a grocery list of curses Mm -hmm. that sort of climaxes in verse 45, where it says, all these curses will come upon you, they will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. So this is what the Apostle Paul assumes you have in mind, as he says in verse 9, that the Old Covenant is a ministry that condemns men. It is not a gracious covenant, a covenant of grace. It is a covenant of works, a legal covenant that demands absolute perfection. And so the comparison then is the New Covenant which is a ministry that brings righteousness. Now he's referring to the new covenant, the death of Jesus on the cross. And of course, this ministry brings righteousness because Jesus actually goes to the cross and he dies and he pays for the sin of everyone who's going to believe. He pays for their sins past, present and future. So he satisfies the wrath of the father and he purchases a transformed life for all those for whom he died. And so the comparison from lesser to greater, the old covenant to the new covenant, condemnation to righteousness. And then it picks up in verse 10, for what was glorious, that's the old covenant, because it had a real purpose in God's plan of salvation and a glorified God. It's sort of like uh, this idea, and people, it's not pleasant to think about, but biblically true, that our God is equally glorified by hell as he is by heaven. Mm because his justice is being satisfied, his holiness is being upheld by his eternal punishment of those in hell, as he is by salvation by grace for those who are with him in heaven. For he says in verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Because now the old covenant was just an unbelieving picture of what Jesus is going to do now with the new covenant. We have the real thing. That this is a glory that lasts forever. It's wonderful. This is real salvation, which is why Paul's referring to the changed lives of the Corinthian believers. They're the ones who are experiencing this. And then verse 11 says, And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Because the old covenant, it was just a picture. So, uh, when, you know, it, there was no eternal life at all, because it wasn't salvation. But now with the new covenant, of course, what Jesus purchased on the cross, we have eternal life, and we'll be with him forever.
1: There are two words that you mentioned. I don't know if we want to go there now, but I'll I'll just bring them up because they're on my mind. You mentioned that the old covenant was a covenant of works, not a gracious covenant. And that brings to mind the covenant theology view of covenant of works, covenant of grace. How would they view something like this? And the second point is you mentioned where it says the ministry that brings righteousness. It has been our experience, I know, and a number of times that when a lot of people say the word righteousness, they equate that with Christ's perfect law-keeping, mm. his life, not his death. Now, I don't know if we want to go in either of those directions right now, but, but you mentioned those terms, and right away my, my, my mind went to those two uh, aspects or, or two theological views.
0: Well, okay, l- let's just address them briefly, because okay. you're right. We will come back and spend quite a bit of time on them in great detail. But the uh, first one again— The gracious covenant, okay. works covenant, yeah. that idea. Every, uh, to the listeners, my, um, my formal theological training where I went to seminary was Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, which is the official seminary of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. And it was a very fine school, and I really was very appreciative for the biblical grounding that they gave me. But they came from the point of view of covenant theology. And, of course, the stock answer or explanation of the Old Covenant in covenant theology is that it is another administration of the one covenant of grace. It was a gracious covenant. And we would say that even though we recognize that our brothers who— Embrace covenant theology; they're wonderful brothers, but we think they're in biblical error at this point. That no, the old covenant is not gracious because the demand is is for perfect obedience. The demand is not that you believe and then a changed law li- and then a desire to obey. You know, a changed life is the evidence that Jesus died for your sins. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is you have to obey perfectly.
1: I've heard them the phrase "law gospel, law gospel," and and I've always taken it to me when I hear that from covenant uh, theologians and covenant covenant guys, is that the law drives you to the cross. The law points you to the cross because it 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 shows you your need of a savior. And I would agree. Yes, by understanding I cannot keep the law, I do realize I'm. I'm in a bad place, I need a Savior, I need mercy. That part I get, but I don't see how you can say that covenant is a covenant of grace.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, there is uh, there is sort of a, a shifting in aspects of the covenant theology camp on how to explain this, and sometimes you'll hear them explain it in these terms, that it is a uh, gracious covenant with legal implications, mm. which... Uh, I don't think that's a very consistent way of thinking, but uh, but at least it shows they are at least uh, aware mm-hmm. of the, sort of all the language in the old covenant. It is do this or you you die. Right. So, but we but we will come back to this. Probably uh, we'll interact with covenant theology as well as dispensationalism uh, all the way through our study here, and mm-hmm. we particularly will interact with covenant theology when we, when we as we address law. And we interact with dispensationalism as we deal with Israel, the people of God. So let's go back now and pick this up a little bit. Uh, Verse 12 shifts in in 2 Corinthians 3. It, it, It takes us back to Mount Sinai again, only to a description of an account that we're not given much detail back in Exodus, but we're given more detail here. So let's read this and then refer to that. Paul says, therefore, since we have such a hope, meaning this salvation, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, let's kind of go back to that. Remember on Mount Sinai, when Moses came down from the mountain after he talked with God, his face literally glowed. In the Israelites, at least back in Exodus simply, they require, request that he cover his face, which he did, put a veil over it. And then it seems over a period of time, the glowing would go away. He would then remove the veil. That's all we're told. We're not told significance of it, or whatever. But now we find that Paul says, what was actually going on? They, The Israelites were, were demanding, cover your face. Because this veil that Moses put on his face is a symbolic uh, representation of their unbelief. Ah, So he moves from this literal veil that Moses put on his face when he came down from Mount Sinai. Then it talks about this veil covers their hearts. So now he's moving from the literal veil on Moses to the actual veil covering their heart. And he's just talking about unbelief. And he's saying, okay, Israel is unbelieving. That's what the Old Covenant produces an unbelieving people. That's what Israel was. And so when you become a believer, this veil of unbelief is removed. So we then, as an unbeliever, as a believer, we are described as having unveiled hearts. So you're still dealing with this comparison of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The Old Covenant's works, New Covenant's grace, the Old Covenant produces unbelievers, the New Covenant, new believers, real believers. So then when verse 16, it says, For whenever anyone turns to the Lord, as we said, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, of course, we know that's true because when you become a believer—we we can discuss this in greater detail down the road—that when you become a believer, you are no longer a slave to sin. You, you are given this new motivation by the Holy Spirit. You are this incurable God-lover. This, you are driven by the Spirit of God to live for Christ. So you, you are a God-lover who struggles with sin, but you're a God-lover who struggles with sin. So there is freedom. You're no longer a slave to sin. That's the idea. So it says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we believers, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, which we do because we have trans we have transformed lives, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And of course this is the this is the hub of New Covenant theology, which is the cross, which produces a transformed life. That is, it is impossible to have Jesus die for you and grant to to you the gift of faith and you not be a God-lover. That's not possible. And it's not possible to be a a real believer and not have a changed life because he says we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory.
1: And this, yeah, go ahead. And, 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 And the evidence of that the evidence of that changed, transformed life are the various works that we perform. But the works don't get us anywhere. They're just the evidence. It's what we call the fruit of the Spirit, that that we see the transformation. We see the glory, too, where he talks about that our unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. Part of that is in our lives, right? In, in, yes. in how we act, in the love we share with one another and and and, and the grace and mercy that we show others or should be showing others.
0: Yeah, that's why we have these these strong passages. Uh, Example, go to Romans chapter 6, where the topic is the radicalness of the new heart in the life of the believer. And go down to verses 17 and 18. Just notice how the Apostle Paul describes the believer. He says, But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is just talking about this new motivation in the life of the believer that guarantees a changed life. So as an unbeliever, we were a self-centered God-hater. Whereas now, as a believer, we are... a a God-lover who's going to desire to be other-person-centered. Now, there's there's one other passage that in my own life, it says the same thing, but in 1 John. Mm. And we'll come back here once again, because there's lots of passages in 1 John that say this sort of a thing. But if you go to the end of chapter 4, verses 19 and t- through 21, this is a passage that has really uh, had a tremendous impact on my life. And course, all of First John, it seems, the Apostle John, is simply describing the evidence of who is a real believer, because he's, he's obviously very aware that what Jesus purchased on the cross, you know, forgiveness of sins and changed life. But verse 19 says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And of course, the way you would just distill this down is that if you say you love God, if you're a believer, because that's what a believer is, a God lover, if you say you love God, but you harbor ill will toward another believer, a brother, he says you what this is saying is it's impossible to stay in that state as a settled mindset because that is absolutely contrary to who you are. And so the idea is that we all we all know, we all struggle with ill will, hatred toward other folks at various times. Yes, we do. But because if we're a real believer, we find it impossible to stay in that state. Because the Spirit of God is is like the hound of heaven. He's just pushing us on to want to live for our Lord, and uh, and the way we show we love our Lord is we love one another. And therefore, we find ourselves being convicted of this unloving attitude toward a brother or sister, and we repent of that, and we turn. And so we're not saying that believers don't struggle with this, but we're saying it's impossible for a believer to who is a real believer to have a settled state of ill will or hatred toward another believer that is just not possible for someone to be a real believer
1: yeah and 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 what you just said being convicted when you read as a believer you read those verses you are convicted. I find myself just sitting here saying, okay, who, doing a quick inventory, who are the brothers that I maybe am harboring a little ill will towards mm-hmm. at the moment? And and I'm convicted of that because I know I shouldn't do that, and that's wrong of me. And how can I claim to love this God if I'm not willing to love those who he's brought into my life, those other believers? So it is, it is very convicting.
0: Oh, oh, yeah, because I, I, in my own struggles, just sort of a personal thing, uh, when I've, you know, fallen into that, Mm -hmm. you know, mindset that is just being unloving towards somebody in my thought life, that there is this, uh, it's hard to describe, of course, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but in me, it's like this angst, this unsettledness, this uncomfortableness, this is not right. And 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 it's just my life, I just can't live at peace with this mindset, because I know it's wrong, and it drives me to have to address it. And go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want this to characterize me. Even though I'm struggling with it, I don't want to characterize me. Mm. And uh, so that's really, uh, and all of this is, is simply a practical outworking of the new covenant, the work of Christ on the cross. And that's what back in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's whole argument is got to the false apostles, my ministry is of the Lord because it is... Based on the new covenant, which produces transformed lives. The old covenant cannot produce believers. It just it's it was it was not given with that in mind. That was not God's purpose. It was a ministry that condemns, a ministry that brings death. God was glorified by it, but his purpose and what he wanted to accomplish from Israel under the old covenant was not a real people of God, only a temporary, unbelieving
1: picture of the people of God. Right, and in the context of, of this uh, chapter three of Second Corinthians, that's Paul's resume. That's it. Here they are. Look, you're the believers that have come come to faith in God through Paul's ministry. That's the evidence. Oh yeah, which is beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really just highlights that. Uh, To be a real believer is a radical thing. There is this transformation taking place by the Spirit of God in your life that it is impossible for you to miss because that's what Jesus purchased for you on the cross, which is the new covenant.
1: Great stuff. We'll talk to you again next week.
0: If you have any questions about today's program, want more information, or would like to support our ministry, you can find us on the web at ids.org or call us at 480-924-4290.